You are listening to the FDNY Pearl Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Recalling the events of September 11th, 2001 evokes painful memories. Although looking back can be difficult, it's critical that we never forget and at times like this walk back through history. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast for our digital magazine, Pro EMS. I'm your host today, Captain Elizabeth Cassio. 9-11 was a day that changed the world and New York City. The events of that day especially changed the world of the FDNY and changed lives like the life of our guest today, Dr. Glenn Aceda. Dr. Aceda is the Chief Medical Director of the New York City Fire Department. He's an 18-year veteran of the department and has been deployed around the world from upstate New York to Haiti to the Dominican Republic, providing medical oversight. On September 11, 2001, Dr. Aceda served as Deputy Medical Director for the FDNY, and I am honored to have him here today to discuss his response to the World Trade Center terrorist attack and the medical oversight he provided. Dr. Aceda, on the morning of 9-11, you were headed to a meeting at the American Heart Association in Manhattan. Tell us, how were you diverted from that meeting while you were in your department response vehicle on the Long Island Expressway? Yes, um, as with any work day in New York City, I was stuck in traffic trying to get to this meeting. And uh, I noticed that a truck also stuck next to me in traffic. The, the driver was honking his horn and flashing his lights and yelling out of his window. So at that point, I opened my window to try to find out what was going on, and he had told me that a plane had just hit one of the towers at World Trade Center. And that's how I actually first heard of this plane into the tower. How did he know, did he say? He said he saw the plane go into the tower, in different words, but uh, essentially letting me know that the plane had gone into the tower. Typical New York fashion? Typical New York fashion, absolutely. So what did you do? So at that point, uh, the vehicle that I was in was uh, one where once you turn the engine off, the radio would automatically go off. Normally, in, in, in this day and age now, the radios are automatically uh, back onto the on position. I believe I'd stopped for some coffee tra- prior to getting into the traffic. So I was very afraid, actually, to put the power on to the radio, knowing that there has to be something about this. And when I did finally push the button, I heard the transmissions going on that a major event was occurring uh, at the World Trade Center complex, uh, essentially that... Uh, Tower number one was on fire. And so at that point, I contacted one of our assistant commissioners to let him know that I was going into the site. And uh, a part of our our medical group was actually upstate at a state EMS conference and meeting. And at that point, uh, they said they were already watching this on CNN. Uh, As you probably remember yourself, the rest of the world seemed to have more information than we had. Because being there, we were very limited as to what we could see. uh, And so we had very limited information, despite the fact that we were on scene. At that point, I tried to get onto the citywide frequency to advise that I was responding into the scene, but there was so much traffic, and much more important than my traffic, saying that I was responding in, so I ended up putting in a miscellaneous entry into my uh, job text that I was responding to the scene. On the mobile data terminal? On the mobile data, data terminal, correct. And at that point, the assistant commissioner said, once I uh, arrived on scene, to please give him an update as to what was going on. How long did it take you to get from where you were stuck in traffic? Once I put the lights and sirens on, um, traffic just really parted. It was pretty miraculous, and I was able to get in very quickly. Uh, And once I was into the city side itself, they had lanes already open, so not long at all. So you arrive at the scene? Yes. Where do you park your vehicle? 
you know, being so naive to the situation, I wasn't with the department in 1993, but when I heard about the response to that bombing originally in the World Trade Center basement, it took approximately 24 hours to evacuate. I had heard these stories. So I thought, you know, let me check into the command post. Let me uh, see what's going on, perhaps get to my meeting and then come back because this was going to be a prolonged operations. I thought that I would make sure to park my car so that I wouldn't get blocked, also not blocking anyone not realizing the magnitude of this. And ultimately, when the, the buildings collapsed, my vehicle uh, was destroyed. So while I'm responding, again, imagining that it could only be a small type of aircraft, couldn't imagine that it was deliberately flown into the building. The plans, again, were, okay, let's see what's going on, and then provide medical oversight as we need, and then perhaps, hopefully, in the next couple hours, kind of shut this down. Uh, once I arrived and the second plane uh, now into the other tower, we realized this was no accident. That so this you, were, you saw the second plane yes. hit the tower? We realized that this was uh, uh, a terrorist attack. We were under attack at that point, which changed things dramatically. When you say changed things dramatically, what do you mean? You know, not realizing that the buildings would eventually come down, but there were reports of several hundred patients injured from some of the debris from the plane, some of the fuel. So we had uh, traumatic type injuries and burn injuries. Uh, we had also been told that there are a lot of people that are just exhausted because they had evacuated the building, in some cases from 80 floors above, coming down the stairs. Uh, so a lot of reports were coming in, but we were essentially told that they were streaming to the north and to the south. So EMS operations already had it planned out where they actually had two sectors in the north and south uh, with triage areas. Uh, there was another physician on scene at the time. We decided to split up so that we could provide medical oversight essentially in the north and south operations. So which direction did you go in? I ended up going towards the North Tower, and the other physician at the time, Dr. Cheerson, went into the South Tower, and we were going to reconvene after we did a, a quick survey of, of what was going on. Did you have a meeting location set up, or you were going to communicate? We were actually going to try to meet at the, there was a common courtyard where that fountain was. Uh, that was initially our thought once we figured out what was going on, to reconvene there. Okay, so now you get to the sector in the North? Yes where it's a triage and treatment area? Initially, the North Tower had its own operations, and I was advised that there was a triage treatment area in the uh, loading dock of Seven World Trade Center. So after I checked in at the North Tower, I headed towards the Seven World Trade Center. And what did you find there? Our former chief of EMS, who was a captain at the time, Captain Abdo Namod, was there. Uh, so our EMS providers were there, established a, a triage area where there were several patients. We were trying to get accountability of our members as well and then made my way back up towards the common courtyard area to do the rendezvous, uh, at which point I heard what sounded to me like another plane. And interestingly, just a few minutes before at the Seven World Trade Center, there was a security uh, uh, person from World Trade Center complex who had a live feed and he was listening to something and he had said, there's another plane that hit the Pentagon and he's repeating to me what he was hearing and there are about 11 planes missing. So I had this information that their plane's missing. So that, to me, I had imagined they were just going to come with another plane. And so as I was heading back up towards the common, uh, the, the courtyard area, I heard what sounded to me like a plane, although in retrospect it was the South Tower, which had been the second tower struck, collapsing. But by that time I had turned back and ran towards seven, the loading dock again. Again, not knowing that the building was coming down. So what did you think was happening? I thought that uh, it sounded to me as if another plane were just flying over and perhaps being dropped onto where we were. So you run from this noise 
Yes. And you end up back in the loading dock? Correct. There was a little space, a little hallway between the loading dock as well as the entrance of the lobby. And someone decided to close this very, very heavy door in between the lobby and that little hallway, which I think ultimately protected us because there was some glass damage in the lobby that had come down. Perhaps some of that dust and debris would have pushed that through. Um, then I remember crouching in a corner of this hallway and as if it would help, I put the visor down on my helmet, crouched down, grabbed the chin strap and thought, this is it. Then after the horrendous sounds, it got pitch dark. And you know, I used to laugh at people that said it was so dark I couldn't see the hand in front of my face, but it was so dark that I could not see the hand in front of my face. And everyone was in a panic, screaming and such, and some essentially said, you know, just, just everybody, you know, everybody quiet down. I thought that somebody had closed the loading dock bay doors for us as, as protection, but it, it got that dark with debris that that bright sunny day became pitch black. And uh, it turned out that um, there was someone with a camera that was standing at the entrance or the exit, I guess, in our case. And he didn't take pictures of us, but he was flashing this camera. So it looked like a strobe light, almost like a disco ball. And what I found funny at the time, if there's anything funny about it, was everyone looked like there are different poses in panic as the flash went off. But that was enough to allow us to see where the exits were, not being very familiar with the uh, layout of the building. Uh, at that point, I reconvened with, with the captain at the time, and we escorted the walking wounded patients who had really just stopped there because they were very tired for an evaluation, brought them around not knowing again where to go, not knowing what had happened, but luckily we made the right and another right, which was the right way to go, going north. Saw a ambulance on the corner with people essentially hanging on the sides of the ambulance and the bumper, wherever they could hang on to. I said, if you're that healthy, you can walk, you need to get off. We put the patients that we had into the ambulance. I remember hitting the side of the ambulance saying, indicating, go ahead. And the EMT was in the driver's uh, seat, stuck his head out and said, where am I supposed to go? And I said, I don't know where, but it's not here. You need to go north. And so that ambulance went off. How many patients did they have? They had about four patients inside, plus another two or three hanging on the bumpers in the back. We unloaded a few and put our patients, about two, into the ambulance. At this point, my back was still towards the towers. I had only been facing north, still not knowing what had happened. I ran into uh, one of our colleagues from the Office of Emergency Management, whose offices at the time were in Seven World Trade. I saw him and he saw me. I said, thank God you're okay. What happened? And he told me the building fell. Not being able to imagine that the building could fall, I said, well, what building? What are you talking about? And he said, the building fell. I said again, what are you talking about? The building fell. He said, look behind you. Do you see the building? At which point I turned around, there was one tower still standing and just massive smoke and debris and dust. And at that point I realized the building fell. And immediately I thought, my God, the other doctor's gone. You know, being on some of the FEMA deployments, uh, some of our Special Operations Command members, which we get uh, deployed with, I thought they were first into the building. They must be gone. And unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that was the case. We, we lost so many. And I thought, we got to go find the other guys. And then I thought very quickly and said, that other tower is coming down as well. But uh, had to go back. In the meantime, my department pager and phone at the time had gone off, but nothing was working. Communication was gone. Uh, one, multiple pages from, from the office and multiple pages from my wife and not being able to call them. Um, I thought they must be worried. Let me get a call off to them. And as I'm walking, I see a bank of pay phones 
I'm thinking, our radios aren't working, our cell phones aren't working, our beepers aren't working. There's just no way. Tug into my pocket and I have a, a quarter. And I'm thinking, and this is Manhattan. It'll probably be 50 cents anyway. <laughs> if it's working, I still don't have enough money. So I get to the, the phone bank. I pick up one of the pay phones, the public pay phones, and there's actually a, a tone, a ringtone. I thought, that's odd. I put the quarter in and I call my wife at home. And sure enough, it gets through. And my wife answers in a panic on the other end and says, oh, my God, the building fell. I said, no, no, I know. I know the building fell. I said, uh, uh, Alan Shearson, the other doc, he's got to be, he's gone. I said, Manny Delgado, he's gone. You know, all these, I said, they, they, they went to that building. They're gone. I said, I got to go find him. I said, I'm going to be very busy. I'll try to call you as soon as I can. And I don't know when that's going to be because I'm going to be busy. I said, I'm not going to do anything to endanger myself, but I'm going to be busy and I'll call you when I can. And I said, oh, and do me a favor. Call my mom in San Francisco. Tell her I'm okay. And then I hung up. And so I started walking towards the building, looked at the tower, and thought, this building's coming down. So I ended up going to the West Side Highway, looked down at the tower again, and said, I, I can't leave these guys. i got to go find them. So I started walking towards the tower, and no more than five steps before a plume of smoke came out of the, the top of the building. The top of the building tumbled, and then it started coming down. At that point, I turned and ran up the West Side Highway into the first alleyway that I could get into. And I found about 20 to 30 police officers, firefighters, other EMS providers. We were all hugging the wall. And somebody was running past us saying, you're not far enough, you're not far enough. So at that point, we all ran back onto the West Side Highway and started heading north. Luckily, visibility was still good so that I could see apparatus, I could see vehicles, I could see where the sidewalks were, where the center divide was. So I knew that if I just kept running straight, for the most part, I wasn't going to run into anything. Other people, unfortunately, when the debris came and the dust cloud, they couldn't see and they ended up running into vehicles and tripping on sidewalks. But I knew that as long as I kept running straight, I was okay. And as fast as I could run, I started to feel this hot gas, like hot sand being thrown at me. And I'm thinking, the larger debris has got to be right behind. And I kept running as fast as I could until I ended up about Chamber Street, at which point I stopped. I turned around and now there was a sheer eerie silence, like a terrible blizzard had come by uh, with all the dust, it looked like snow. And you could hear people coughing in this dust cloud and then a few seconds later they would emerge out of there, all ghostly white coming out. And uh, then the second tower to come down and I was already at a loss the first time around. Here it's like, what, what, what do we do now? It sounds like you had a pretty good presence of mind through all of this. So you're out of this second collapse. What do you do? What did you do? At this point, again, radio's still failing and not able to communicate with anyone. It was a matter of trying to go back into the site. And whenever you saw someone, you gave each other a hug and said, thank God you're OK. Who else did you see? Where are they? And then we started to try to piece together where people were, who was still alive and such, and we tried to figure out the best way of providing the medical oversight. And prior to the buildings coming down, you know, I, I saw probably several dozen traumatic and burn-type injuries. After the buildings came down, there was no one. Um, people just disappeared. And uh, at that point, we were still hoping that we would have survivors, so we were still in the rescue mode, particularly what we do with the search and rescue team going into collapse uh, buildings and such, um, we were able to establish the New York Task Force rescue team through our paramedics, our, our firefighters, and our police officers as well. 
and we even established a uh, medical area at Chelsea Piers. And I thought that was actually going to be a good location, unfortunately, more for the ice skating rinks because they have these two rinks, I believe, that we were going to use as a more detail area. Uh, still being naive to the fact that we were not going to find anyone, uh, definitely not intact. Um, you know, again, my thought was, okay, we'll have a medical facility there as well as this morgue area where we could put the bodies there. Again, in, in some cases, we were lucky to find the pieces of people, unfortunately, no bodies. At any point, did you manage to find the rest of the team that you were with from your office? Yes, in the afternoon, finally, I found them. And uh, until then, I had not known if they had survived or not. So that was a very emotional reunion at that point. Um, and they had some injuries, and uh, luckily not, uh, not major, but... Uh, what about you? Did you have any injuries? Luckily, physically, no. But, you know, with the World Trade Center follow-ups and such, you know, my pulmonary functions are not as great. Uh, they seem to decline every time I go back. And uh, some liver issues with some enzymes, blood work and such. But uh, luckily, I feel great. And that's great. But you always hear of the, the scary part is you hear of someone who looked healthy just a year ago, and then you hear they're in the hospital. And then sometimes, in the worst-case scenarios, you hear that they have died. And, um, you know, it ultimately turned out to be probably the largest weapon of mass destruction in the long run with so many deaths that we continue to have, World Trade Center related, unfortunately. That's a good point. At what point did you leave the scene? The next day, after about 32 hours, 30, 32 hours or so, I ended up staying the overnight. And our physicians from the office that had been at the Albany meeting, they were able to fly back on state trooper helicopters because all air traffic was grounded, but they were able to get special permission to fly back in. And so I ended up staying the first night, uh, then went home for about six hours, and then came back for the, the, the next night shift. We tried to divide it up into 12-hour shifts. Initially, we tried a 24-hour shift, but that became very difficult as well. If you had to um, choose one thing that you're most proud of, of the EMS members and their response on 9-11, what would you... Uh so you know, I'm proud of uh, our EMS providers every day, but on that particular day, it, it was just their tremendous dedication and bravery. This was a scary, scary situation. It's the scariest situation that I've ever been in. And to be able to function at that high level, providing the very uh, high level of medical care to those that needed it, uh, just in such an austere environment was just amazing. And I'm very proud uh, to have been with them, and I'm proud of, of, of all the members who uh, participated. What was it like when you got home? How did your family react? Yeah, it's very interesting because, you know, once you know that you're alive, you're so busy that you can't really think about anything else. So it was very emotional getting home. And uh, one of the first things, I had uh, two kids at the time. My youngest was six weeks old. So I didn't want to contaminate the house. So once I got home, and I had to be in a different vehicle because my vehicle was no longer functional. I essentially said, listen, just throw me some heavy-duty garbage bags from the inside. Let me strip down of everything I have. I'm going to put that in the bag and keep it outside. I'm going to go upstairs and take a shower first, and then let me just get all this off of me. And then, uh, But those are things that uh, you really had to consider uh, because of the contaminants. And we just don't know what was in that. So did you work at the site? Yes, on and off uh, with the other physicians at the Office of Medical Affairs. We were there till February. Uh, essentially, as long as they called it a rescue operation, um, and, you know, unfortunately, we knew very early that it was going to be more recovery. So I was there uh, until February.
And what does never forget mean to you? <sighs> never forget means just that. We have to honor all of the heroes that ran into harm's way to rescue, uh, evacuate, and treat total strangers. Uh, we have to honor always our members who unfortunately made the ultimate supreme sacrifice. And we will never forget. It's very important to tell these stories about responding to the most horrific uh, terrorist event of our time. And it's difficult for many people. Mm -hmm. I've asked other survivors who aren't able to speak as freely and candidly as you've done today. And um, everybody reacts differently. Mm -hmm. right? Some people can go to the museum, some people cannot. Some people can go see the new Freedom Tower, some people cannot. Everybody reacts differently, and we all respect each other's viewpoint on it. Um, but what's most important to me about today is that you shared your story, and I want to thank you deeply because I think it's a story that has to be told. It means a lot. I know that for the members of EMS, FDNY EMS, they think, think very highly of you. They know that you started as an EMT and a paramedic. But thank you, it's uh, very meaningful. Thank you very much. I want to thank all of you for joining us today for the FDNY Pro one-on-one -on -one podcast. Listen in next time when we talk to another FDNY EMS professional. Until then, stay safe. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.